I got this in the mail today. Uh, oh. I only paid like four dollars for it, so you're probably getting no royalties. But oh. yeah. <laughs> uh, you for, gotta do what you gotta do. Yeah. Brandon, what book were you just holding up in case we use this for audio listeners? The Devil's Pocket Book by Ross Jeffrey. Oh, I think we know him. And this isn't the introduction. We don't have Chuck on yet, but Ross Jeffrey. <laughs> yes, oh, yeah. I think we know him. Isn't he that guy sitting right there with his cup of tea? <laughs> oh, God. God. I like your headphones, man. Thank you. They're my wife's. I just stole them. Hey, hey, so you know how the English are really uh, big on like being polite? Don't don't test Brennan and my politeness, motherfucker. Because you asked to be on. You asked the next time we're talking to Chuck, and we got you on, baby. I know, I know. Thank you so much. I am... Never, never test our politeness, even though we're American. <laughs> Ross is a very polite individual, and we've had our own fair share of interactions on Twitter. And I sent him a present. No kidding. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Very, very nice present. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Brennan, you didn't say anything about my black room. It's very black, I, isn't it? It is it very is. black. Where are you? Coming to you from the void. Yeah, so I shut off the light this the time, this. and I got I got a LED, little circle LED on my computer behind the camera. Mm-hmm. Well, that that works. Didn't realize the effect would be me in front of a, a black the hole. Void. Yeah, the void. You in, <laughs> in some dark It's fitting. Now. You're good. No, it's actually really like super not creepy here. But it kind of looks like it on the screen. Uh, Candace, That's are not you convincing? Yeah, Am I it's, what? it's so not haunted here. This is the a safe thing. space. This is a safe space, especially yeah. your place, Pat. Yeah. So are we really not allowed to talk about Fight Club. Huh? What's that? Are we really not allowed to talk about Fight Club? <laughs> <laughs> you uh, can't ask that. Yeah, I'm not sure you want to ask that. <laughs> He's probably asked. Can you imagine how many times that guy has asked that question? I don't mm. care. I wrote my <laughs> final paper for my bachelor's degree about Fight Club. Oh, you have to bring that up. I'm yeah. just saying, like, this is how much I was obsessed with Fight Club. I was not aware of that until right now. That's awesome. It's okay. We can skip Fight Club because I'm sure he's sick to death of it. It's fine. You got to bring it up. <laughs> Bre- you better not. Brennan fanboyed for, like, the only time I've ever seen him fanboy. It's crazy. I've never thought of that until just now. I what? geek out. I geek out over some authors, but Brennan, yeah, has I, kept I, his cool except for I do controlled fanboying. You listen to that episode. There is controlled fanboying. Oh, you ain't say nothing yet. Yeah, yeah. Not everyone can have a library like mine. Chuck, how are you, buddy? I'm Hello. Good. Can you see me? Am I there? Yes, sir. We can yeah. see you, and we can hear you. There's a new painting behind you. There is. I can't see me, which is terrific. I love this. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. Thank you. Um, is there anything you do not wish to, to talk about? Politics, please. <laughs> Never that. Yeah. Never okay. that. That's fine. <laughs> All the questions are gone now. Oh, yeah. Brennan. You, you I got nothing. Us. I got nothing. I wanted his opinion on the Speaker of the House. That's it's fine. <laughs> Next time. <laughs> Stop it. All right, so. (laughs) Welcome to episode 213. This is with returning guest Chuck Polnick. Say hello, Chuck. Hello, Chuck. There we go. Three times you've done that now. That is great. Uh, Then we got our friend, Brennan LaFaro. Say hello, sir. Hello, everybody. And, of course, our other friend, Candice Nola. Say hello. Hello. And our other friend that is our guest host tonight, Ross Jeffrey. Say hello, Ross. Hello, everyone. Uh, Last time we talked with Chuck, it was in 2021, I think, maybe 22. But we uh, talked about Rosemary's Baby, the book, and the movie. And that was... That stuck with us for a while. Um, so that was a year ago. I was wondering, Chuck, what your your book tour just ended. I want to mm-hmm. know. I want to hear how that was. I want to hear because you always put on a really unique performance. I know that that means a lot to you because it's special. I want to hear about that. Anything you want to tell us? 
Never again. Never <laughs> am I doing. I started in March ordering stuff and repackaging it and counting it and planning all these activities. And I, I just overplanned it. And uh, in my in my world, book tour either starts really great or it ends really great. And so the first event was in Portland. It was about 700, almost 800 people. And it was a giant train wreck. It was it was dying in front of 700 plus people. Um, yeah, it was horrible. At one point, somebody leaned over and said that we had gone three hours. It was just three hours of agony. And I just had to pull the plug. Everything after that, including Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh was a love song. Pittsburgh was incredible. Everything after that, all the events were fantastic. But Portland was the first one, and I had planned too many things to do, too many little games to play, too many sort of shout outs, and the whole thing was just a just a giant mess. Oh. So yeah. So uh, why is it so important to you to I, I I go to a reading, I go to a signing, and they're normally very subdued. It's an author at a table. Uh, they've got folding chairs in the back of a Barnes and Noble. Why is it important to you to make it a big event, something memorable? You know, on on uh, on the the most basic level, I started doing it this way uh, when I started to hate doing those, you know, a chair at a table and a bunch of people watching you. Uh, and I found that uh, a physical gesture trumped any kind of sort of bad headspace that I was in. So if I was giving people a present or I was throwing them a big bag of candy, then the physical gesture of doing that made me feel really good. It made me feel like I loved people again. And uh, uh, the other practical thing was getting questions started during Q&A is always like pulling teeth. But then once you get the questions started, ending them is also really difficult. So if I had a stack of prizes there and I said, okay, I've got 10 prizes, let's, let's hear your question. Then people know they instantly want to ask a question to, to get a prize. And they know that once the, the last prize is handed out, the Q&A is over. So I just found all these ways of kind of structuring the experience using objects. And that way, when I was incredibly tired, when I only slept two or three hours the night before, and I hadn't eaten very well in weeks, the objects and the scripting would lead me through the event that I could prevent. I could provide the same quality of event uh, with the structure of objects and the structure of ritual and this kind of varying pattern of physical activity, as well as the storytelling, uh, kept it more interesting for me and for the audience. So there are just so many reasons why it got big. And another reason was that so many of the people I was talking to had never been to an author event. And so I wanted their first author event to be really extraordinary. Um, and uh, I wanted them to, to just not be bored. And I didn't want to be bored either. So it was just for so many reasons why they got big and they got uh, crazy in this way. That's interesting. I'm thinking of the uh, kind of adage that if you're, if, if you're bored, then your reader is probably bored and blowing it up to the uh, that level. Uh, Ross, I'd like to throw it to you. Uh, yeah, well, um, I can't believe I'm actually sitting here talking to Chuck because Chuck, you are one of the uh, writers that made me want to write. Um, so it's an honor to be here and, and chat to you. Um, I, just, I wanted to get onto the book, if that's all right. Um, oh, please. So and I'm going to let you into a little secret because uh, I was chatting to uh, Pat about the book because I was desperately trying to work out how old the uh the main protagonist were and i was only a little way into it and uh <laughs> i sent pat a message and said just just an idea how how far along into this book are you he was like oh, i'm like 17 chapters and i was like right okay so how old do you think these kids are and he's like three or four and i was like <laughs> i was like have you been paying attention <laughs> um and then uh yeah so one of my questions was because there has been much talk over the age of the protagonists, uh, like in reviews and things, and people didn't quite under, didn't quite pick up clues along the way and things like that. Um, how important was it for you to kind of, um, or, or what was the reasoning behind trying to kind of 
not hide it but kind of divert people away from actually telling them how old they were because i think like you know in chapter uh 18 or something like that like you use sanskrit to kind of put across how old they are and stuff like that so what what was the kind of drive behind that for you and what were you trying to achieve with with keeping it a bit of a secret well uh, there is an author's note the last thing and typically the, the thing that people never read in a book uh, uh, is uh, about the type where they talk about the typeface and then beyond that about the author which is usually some pointless boilerplate and uh and so in this one in every book i want to do some sort of physical experiment in my book survivor at the last moment i had this idea to to number the pages backwards mm. so it would end on page 1 and it was just such a simple strange thing uh, and it was difficult to do because getting the folio backwards and ending on page one was just really a challenge for publishing. But in this one, I wanted to provide a kind of Rosetta Stone at the very end. And to do that in the about the author, where I kind of uh, show my hand, I, I state overtly, I, I state my intention for the book. And in the author's note, I I. I I just I put the intention out there. I say this is a book about addiction and how you can suddenly wake up at the age of 60 and find yourself still a child because mm -hmm. you basically stopped emotionally and psychologically maturing at the age where you became addicted. And so yeah, in a way that's why the the these adults present as children because they represent addiction. And the way that the addicted person sort of, you know, becomes or is stuck at the age, you know, at a childhood or an adolescent age. Yeah, because there's a, there's a section in there about the trauma that they suffer, isn't it, at a certain age and that they remain that kind of age throughout kind of how they progress through life is that kind of age that they were when that trauma happened. So I thought that was quite um, very insightful. I really enjoyed it um uh candace have you got a a follow-up um actually i don't have a question that because that just blew my mind <laughs> um that actually made a whole lot of the story just sort of click on a whole bunch of levels for me just just now and when i read the author's note in the back, it clicked, but hearing what you had to say, and then Ross, you, like, I feel like a row of dominoes just kind of fell in place. Like, <laughs> that makes so much more sense now. Um, wow, no, come back to me in a minute, because... No worries, yeah. Candace. I'll jump in. I need a minute. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Chuck, I want to talk about. Um, uh, 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 I think Brennan froze. <laughs> for a second. If See, I, it blew him out of the water, too. <laughs> if I can jump in with a, uh, just a follow up statement. Uh, yeah. on, on some level, this book was really inspired by so many, especially horror books. Mm -hmm. um, which, which are about small children or people who are, um, they present as children. And I'm thinking of The Turn of the Screw, which was made into the uh, the movie The Innocents, mm. which is about two small children in an English country house who have been very, very corrupted and troubled by this, uh, this I believe it's a murder-suicide of their yeah. governess. And also uh, uh, Brideshead Revisited, which is about these, these two sort of childlike, uh, adult young men uh, in this enormous English country house, uh, as well as uh, we've always lived in the castle, which is about the, this kind of frozen uh, pair of sisters that live in this enormous house. And on a, a really literal level, it's also about uh, this book is inspired by the Tin Drum by Gunter Grass, in which uh, we, you have Oscar, who, because of the horror of the war, Oscar has decided to remain uh, a child and and bears witness to all of the second world world war and all the nazi atrocities by remaining this child that no one will will uh come after this child that will seem sort of innocent everywhere he goes but a child that is also very very corrupt by what he's experienced 
So Oscar is very much auto from my book. Yeah. Something I love about your writing, Chuck, is that like you can, you have this gentleness about your, um, the unique stories you tell, cause they're always different and it's, it's really cool kind of watching you, uh, evolve as a writer as well. Um, I'm just wondering if I know, like we talked to enough writers where, you know, obviously you don't know how the next book's going to sell or how it's going to be received, but when you start to actually write each new book or it could even be a short story, is there, is there, I guess, excitement or like a, like a flick of a, a spark of like, yeah, that's a new story. Does that still excite you? Or do you have some kind of new experience with that? You know, it's a, it's always got to be more exciting than anything else I could be doing at that time. Um, so much of this book was actually sort of thought out uh, walking through a cemetery. Portland has this enormous cemetery called uh, Lone Fir Cemetery. And I walked through it with my editor constantly. And just these endless rounds through the cemetery talking about it. And at one point, uh, he, I, I said I wanted to write a, a satire on cozies, those sort of murder mysteries that take place in English villages where somebody's killed in a really over-the-top, bloody, horrible way. And uh, it's up to a vicar or an old lady or, a, or an animal to solve this murder. And nobody ever reacts to the horror or the emotion of the murder. Uh, they're just all so busy sort of figuring out who the clues and, and who did it. But uh, at one point, talking to my editor, he, he got this kind of expression, and he said, how old are these two brothers? And I said... I think they're like 45 and 38. Oh, wow. And he laughed so hard. He was just so dumbfounded um, because it, at that point, he'd read everything up to that point in the book. And uh, and he was just kind of wondering why they seemed so corrupt for such small kids. Mm. And when I just stated that as a possibility and he laughed so hard, I knew that that had to be the case. And so, so much of the books is about is about sort of testing the material on my friends mm. to see what is going to kind of create that shocked reaction, uh, or what's just going to. And a lot of times, they might be bored, or they might say that I've already seen that, I saw that in a movie, and so they can inform me about cultural precedent, so that I don't go to territory that somebody else has already kind of uh, mapped out. Sure. Uh, I just got one more question. Um, I'm wondering if you talked about books that inspire, have inspired this story and others. And I'm wondering if there's, is like Kerr Vonnegut um, or, or Philip K. Dick. I feel like those are two, and maybe even Jules Verne or Mark Twain. I feel like, I feel like those would kind of be inspirations for you, but I don't think I've asked that before. What, what uh, writers inspire you? I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, very much. Uh, science fiction writers and uh, and Vonnegut, hmm. uh, but also very much horror writers. But so much of horror is very, very classic modernism. And so it, it doesn't have that kind of conversational repetitive quality that I'm looking for that I really enjoy about minimalist writing. Hmm. And so the, I think the best minimalist writing is almost more like a song. It's almost more like lyrics than it is like prose. And so I love horror, but some of it, so much of it seems to still really be modeled after the most classic horror, the Edgar Allan Poe, Hawthorne, Lovecraft, um, that really high sort of modernism. Mm. And so I love horror, but I want to see horror that is written in different voices, in a more immediate voice, a more repetitive voice, a more song-like voice. Um, and that's what I find in Vonnegut. And Vonnegut was arguably a science fiction writer, as was uh, Philip K. Dick. Mm -hmm. And so, so many of those devices, those repetitions and things, I find in Vonnegut, I uh, just adore. Uh, Will Self, I think, is as close to a minimalist writing in horror that I've ever seen. So I, I love Will Self. That's wonderful. Yeah, that, that's cool. I didn't know all that about you. Um, let's go with uh, Ross. You want to take over? Uh, oh, Brennan, are you 
you went away. I'm going to try again. Hopefully, yeah, I'm going to try again. Um, <laughs> what, what I was going to say is, you know, I don't know if theme is the right word, but uh, one thing that kind of draws the attention in this book is the idea of writing it wrong. Um, the best example that comes to mind is the Richard versus David Attenborough thing. And the last time we had you on, we were talking about consider this. And one subject we touched on was the idea of almost kind of engaging the reader by allowing them to kind of outsmart you. And I wonder if that tied into the way you wrote this book and how. Um, you know, and the more, I think, overt example of that in uh, this book is where Cecil, the narrator, is talking about the great uh, Irish tomato famine and how all the tomatoes in Ireland died. And so the Irish were starving. And he he goes, he waxes on for a whole passage about the tomato famine. And I thought for sure the editor would pull that. But apparently that was it was obvious enough. But I, I love those little intentional getting it wrongs so that the reader is kind of amused, but also the reader feels superior in that moment. So the reader is suddenly sympathetic, uh, especially sympathetic with a character that is uh, unsympathetic. Uh, you know, and it all kind of dates back to Scarlett O'Hara. Uh, her first line from Gone with the Wind is, there will be no war. There's not going to be a war. I'm sick of all this talk about war. And as soon as she says that, we are sucked in because we are made to feel superior. And we want to see, we, we, we're kind of protective of her despite her kind of obnoxiousness. But we also want to sort of see her meet her sort of reality. Um, so getting it wrong in that kind of trolling way is just a great way of hooking the reader and keeping the reader on board. Excellent. Yeah. I, I oh, As and, soon oh, as I... If I, if I may say about the Attenborough thing, I had to make it Richard because David would sue me. So it had to be the <laughs> No, seriously, that was it. It had to be the dead brother because you can't be sued <laughs> by a dead person. And when I got it back from copy editing, the copy editor had changed every Richard to a David. And it was a nightmare trying to make my case. And I would think that the, the deep pockets of the publisher would make the publisher kind of aware that, no, you, you can't libel a living person, that you're just asking for it. So it had to be the dead one. Wow. That's hilarious. Uh, it, it, what it caused me to do is every time there was, you know, an implied line is read it in the voice of John Hammond from Jurassic Park. But um <laughs> Ross, I'm going to throw it back to you, buddy. Um, yeah, as I was wondering, um, Chuck, why you chose to set it in kind of Wales and um, kind of, yeah, how much kind of research you had to do and just to get things right and colloquialisms and things like that. Like, was that a nightmare? Did, yeah, just kind of... I I've always understood that Stephen King is really proud of not doing research. And in this one, I just, I, I read a thousand cozies and cozies always take place in a kind of rural English, Welsh, Irish, Scottish setting. And, uh, and then beyond that, yeah, it was just using a bunch of Brit speak and using <laughs> it wrong and using very high Brit speak, you know, yeah. high culture language and then really low Brit speak. For the same characters yeah it, it and, comes across brilliantly how you do, how you do it because it just mix, mess, messes with your mind <laughs> and the, uh, real crucial to that is just not giving a shit yeah. so yeah. um I, I thought for this one i would not really and i, I re would really wouldn't be wedded to it in a way it was going to be kind of a a parody of so much of the cozy world that uh i didn't want to get i did not want to get things right yeah okay because you you absolutely destroyed my childhood in probably the first two chapters with yeah david richard attenborough thing and then winnie uh, the pooh like you just winnie the pooh you just destroyed that for me now i can't can't look at him ever again you know but, it's uh, uh it's funny what people will react to and when my editor read that list of of food that they eat at the at the funeral in the third chapter 
uh, all those pickled duck eggs and all those yeah. kind of custards. Uh, my editor almost vomited. He was so sickened by <laughs> what seemed to be very classic British foods yeah. um, that uh, it's, it's funny what people will react to. Yeah, I, I, I've eaten all those foods. So, you know, it's all right. I'm still here, still alive. <laughs> so, <sighs> Winnie the Pooh, uh, just to bring that up, that's what I forget what the term is, but like you can legally write the copyrights over. I think it's like 100 years. Right. Yeah. It fell out of copyright in February, mm. but really only the first uh, two Winnie the Pooh books fell out of copyright. Oh. Uh, and so that's why we had Pooh, Blood, and Honey in February. Because mm. I think that movie launched more or less on the day that the Pooh character fell out of copyright. Mm. I have not seen it. I'm not sure I want to watch it. I love Winnie the Pooh. Um, yeah, <laughs> I so don't love Winnie the Pooh, but <laughs> not anymore. <laughs> I want to know what your... Sorry if this is a cliche question, but I want to know what your um, influences were for the family, the, the main family in... Uh, in your new book, uh, Downton Abbey, you know, really? Well, that's that's why we have this one younger brother who just adores the older brother. Hmm. Uh, that Cecil is like maybe three years younger than his brother. Is that Cecil stands for United States, and oh. Otto stands for Great Britain, in the same way that Americans just worship a stereotypical British world. And that's sort of represented by Upstairs, Downstairs, and by Downton Abbey, and by Gosford Park, and by all of these kind of, you know, Brit porn, Merchant Ivory movies that Americans just gobble up. Um, geez, what was the uh, uh, the Merchant Ivory one? Uh, Remains of the Day. Yeah. We just adore these Upstairs versus Downstairs microcosm stories. Uh, and so that's that was the, the huge inspiration for this book. Very cool. Uh, Candace, go ahead. Okay. Um, I think I have the question I want to ask now because I needed a minute. <laughs> <laughs> and now I'm going to have to read this book all over again because so much more is just going to make sense. Um, going back to it is a story about addiction and now that we know the ages of the characters in the book which still is blowing my mind right right now um this could could be seen as a character study of sorts for those who have been through a lot of abuse and corruption and addiction and how it sort of just freezes their mental state into where there's really nothing else to them is just that. And it's all, I, I, I kind of feel like they are just in the story repeating the same things that they were exposed to and they've never developed beyond that. It is, is that the intent of how you wrote them? It's Very just to so. kind of be in that frozen, like they cannot get out of this loop. Uh, the, the nature films that they're always watching. Yeah. Uh, it stands for online pornography. It's just, Every nature film that they're talking about, and the reason why their nursery smells so bad is because it is all self-comforting behavior. All of this kind of addictive, self-comforting, escapist behavior that they okay. uh, indulge in that has kind of kept them trapped uh, at this, this seemingly young age. Mm -hmm. And it's also about the escalation that's necessary to keep the addiction satisfying. They, yeah. they have to do the same thing constantly bigger and bigger and bigger to the point where it begins to break down. And so sense. before the end of the book, it does break down. And that's what that offers uh, at least Cecil, a kind of escape from the addiction, mm -hmm. that one sort of small break at the end where he's able to escape the entire repeating cycle. Yeah. Yeah. It's, like I said, I needed a minute to sort of like when all that sort of fell into place a few minutes ago, 
it just made me look at the whole story in a whole different way now. And that being said, it's brilliantly written. Just that. <laughs> I had to hear you explain it in order to hear, like, in order for all the pieces to just the brilliance of how it's written and how you portray that is just amazing so yeah i'm gonna have to read it again because i think i'm gonna get a whole different viewpoint out of it now than what i had because i i'll admit i was a little bit confused on some parts especially with their ages and i was just like <laughs> how, how old are they and what is happening right now but it's brilliant you're gonna have to come back to me for another question because i'm still processing things but yeah the trauma and the addiction in that frozen mental state is all just brilliantly written. Well, I'm, the other I'm thing, stop with that. <laughs> the other thing that I always want to keep in mind is that nobody really wants to read a book about pain. You really have yeah. to charm them. You have to seduce them into going to this very dark, painful place. Yeah. And in a way, you also have to charm and seduce yourself. Because you're never going to consciously go to that dark place yourself. Uh, that if you go there in a kind of outline, heavily plotted way, that you will avoid going to the the most important aspect. That you yeah. have to sort of force yourself to discover that. And so, I you know I don't want to, I don't want to abuse people for their money. I want to charm them the first time. Yeah. But if they do read it a second time. I would like them to take something different away from it every single time that they read it. Mm. Yeah. And I, I think they absolutely will mm -hmm. with this one. It's yeah. Ross, take I over, buddy. With that. Um, yeah, Chuck, I was going to ask you about, um, and I, I, it just came to me then when Candace was talking, um, but in a lot of your work, you have like either like a, a secret society or a cult or, or something like that. Uh, and I loved it in this book, the kind of society that is set up that his dad's part of and runs and then kind of how they get involved in it and all that and how people are chosen and all this kind of stuff. I don't want to give too many spoilers, but um, the, how how did you come up with that idea? Was it, or, or does that idea um, kind of signify something greater to you that you wanted to kind of get like anti-establishment and all that type of stuff or people just needing to have a break and get out of their kind of rut that they're in um i wanted to write a book about uh empire on a really basic level and this idea that uh that the the lifestyle of this very small number of people depends upon the uh the death of enormous numbers of people mm. and so uh i wanted to do it in the most sort of you know overt way as possible in the book so basically, uh, this is a family of uh, hired assassin, assassins, this kind of institutionalized assassination. Uh, and also the old adage of uh, in every family, the fortune goes uh, from shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. But typically, there's one generation that makes the fortune. The next generation perpetuates the fortune. But the, by the third generation, the family has sort of devolved into such idleness that people are no longer interested in maintaining that fortune. That by the third generation, they're addicted to things, they're they're lazy, they're unmotivated. They just don't want to run the family business. So uh, ultimately, the grandfather more or less has created the fortune, and he's trying to so desperately to enroll his grandsons into perpetuating this fortune but they are the third generation. So they they really have no motivation uh, for destroying people in order so they can sort of live in this giant house and eat candied rose petals all day. Mm. Yeah, because yeah. the, the themes of excessive wealth come out quite a lot in the, in, in the book as well, which is kind of what you've just answered as well, which is, yeah, very, very good. Um, I have one other question, but it's not really related to your book. Um, but I, I was reading today, um, uh, what's it, uh, Chiral Mad 3, uh, oh, okay. which you did, you did an introduction to, and I, I was reading another story, and then I kind of 
read the introduction um and in it you kind of say uh in your introduction um like to you the best horror has always been centered around a topic the current culture couldn't openly discuss uh and then you go on to talk about vampire uh frankenstein um boys from brazil and burnt offerings um and kind of what you feel they addressed in their time um what does the future of horror with kind of today's lens look like in the future to you? Like what kind of big topics do you think might be surfacing a little bit down the line or, or currently now, what do you feel is kind of pulling people's attention? You know, I, I really think that, uh, uh, that uh, addiction is something that is not being addressed and the death of so many people uh, to addictive substances is not being addressed and it cannot be effectively addressed directly. It has to be addressed through a metaphor. And so that's why this book of mine is so heavily, heavily comic, but also so incredibly disguised is because people don't want to be preached to. They're not going to be fixed by somebody who says, I'm here to fix you. So the only way to kind of give them a kind of fresh take on things is to present through a metaphor. And so I think that anything that's still unresolved, like homelessness uh, or addiction, is going to be uh, just kind of incredibly ripe for horror. Uh, mm-hmm. Anything that, that that people cannot look at that they're fatigued and exhausted about. You know, my favorite latest example is for years I wrote back and forth with Ira Levin. And I was always asking him if Rosemary's Baby was really about thalidomide. And he would never admit it. He said, I'm not going to go there. I'm I'm not going to talk about it. He would tell me that when he started writing the book, he really wanted to write about the concept of what if you were expecting a child, but you had no idea what was growing inside of you. And at the time, uh, the horror book, uh, The Midwich Cuckoos, had been written. And that was a source material for the village of the damned, where all of these women were sort of miraculously impregnated overnight. And they all gave birth to these unusual children that were all very similar. And so he couldn't make it about aliens. But whether he'd made it about aliens or about the devil, I think it was still a book about thalidomide, which was this enormous tragedy that took place over about 20 years. And that everyone was so upset about it, but there was no way to resolve that upset, that people were going to have to live with these children and live with this enormous mistake for another lifetime or more. And so he was able to give people a metaphor that allowed them to kind of cathartically exhaust all of their emotional reaction to thalidomide and in doing so make it, you know, make the results of the the tragedy more acceptable in people's lives. Uh, My other great example that I I loved hearing was uh, about how the Frankenstein monster really was this metaphor. It was so embraced because uh, so many men had come back from World War I, from trench warfare, and medical science had saved their lives, where in previous wars they would have died. And because of trench warfare, they were much more likely to have taken their injury in the face So all these young men came back and they were hideously disfigured, but they were walking the streets and people were going to have to look at them for another 80 years. Mm -hmm. And so the Frankenstein monster allowed people the kind of cathartic lens through which they could accept this other unacceptable thing in their lives. And so whether it's addiction, whether it's homelessness, I think that anything that's unresolved like that, that people need a way to kind of ongoingly be with they need a metaphor that allows that yeah i i I, um actually work for a homeless day center so i see it i see that uh on a daily basis um you know homelessness addiction and you're right yeah like it's been around for years and years and years it's getting worse um and yeah people need they don't want to be preached at, but yeah, as you said, they need something that's going to kind of unify that and put it across in a way that's going to 
get people's attention and slowly, slowly catch the monkey type thing. So, you know, hopefully one day we'll get there. <laughs> and it's, it's also, it, it provides a kind of non-threatening under the radar way of mm-hmm. getting people to look at the thing um, without being destroyed by it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so I think that, that, that ability, that attempt to charm people into taking another longer look at these things uh, without the kind of sort of heaviness uh, mm-hmm. is really important. The way that yeah. you describe Ira Levin's reaction to your question, I think that is his answer. You know, it, it, it wouldn't have, a, he could have just answered it if it wasn't a big deal. So I just wanted to say that's really, we've talked about that with other authors. Um, and it, you know, it's, it makes complete sense. Uh, I just wanted to ask, um, do you think that horror is at the core of every human? Like, I, I feel like that's, if you go back in time to the first written literature, wasn't it, wasn't it horror? I know it wasn't Bay Wolf, but that's one of them. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the, the horror um, genre in general, because you, you do have such a love for it yourself and, you got some really neat stories in that realm. So I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on as humans too, because your stories are always based around the human experience. I, I, I touched on this in the, in this book as well, that, that uh, Otto and Cecil make the case that that human beings are basically prey animals. And on a genetic level, they are still waiting for the, the predator to destroy them. And that, uh, that people live with this huge amount of anxiety because they they cannot admit from moment to moment that they are still you know trying to not be killed, not be slaughtered in some horrible way. I, I see this at airports. I think that uh, on a, just a very basic level, human beings realize that what they're doing is incredibly dangerous and physically impossible. And that technology is kind of throwing them into the air. Uh, and they're expected to sit crammed in with each other uh, for long lengths of idle time uh, and pretend that they're not doing this impossible thing. And so that anxiety comes out in all these kind of over-the-top, you know, explosive acting out ways at airports and on airplanes. And so, you know, I always think that, like you mentioned, this underlying terror mm. uh, is always going to be present with us mm. uh, and that, that, that's what we look for from horror is this way to kind of exhaust that terror um, so that we're not is we can exhaust it in a, in a kind of one-time very intense way so that it doesn't sort of build up or lie there all the times destroying our lives in a way that's what fight club was is that fight club was a way to engage consensual violence so that you would exhaust that aspect of yourself for another week or two weeks or whatever. So we need these periodical kind of, you know, cathartic dumps. Sure. That makes sense. Uh, yeah. Speaking of fight club, Candace has uh, actually a really interesting story about that, that, that particular, st- that particular book. <laughs> I'm sorry to put you on blast. You didn't want me to do this, but like it's really interesting. She's very modest. It, it's it's not that interesting, but it is it's a amazing. fact, if I may. Um, so <laughs> I was so obsessed with Fight Club, both the book and the movie, that when I was taking my bachelor's degree, I took I had to take an elective that had nothing to do with what I was actually studying. So I took film and my final paper for that was based on fight club <laughs> and, uh, I, love I that. wrote 22 pages about fight club and all the different aspects of fight club and how it was filmed and how it was portrayed and my opinion of the movie and what i thought it meant and just on and on and i got an a so <laughs> thanks for that <laughs> that's excellent <laughs> i've seen fight club probably far too many times so i don't it's know good. to tell you there but yeah Fun fact. When that book came out, half the reviewers reviewed it as if it was science fiction. They really <laughs> thought it was a science fiction book. 
And another equal half uh, reviewed it as if it was horror. They thought it mm -hmm. was horror. There really wasn't a place for it. Um, yeah. So, yeah. And then after 9-11, all transgressive fiction became terrorism. So oh, yeah. things had to become very much more genre uh, to to get published. Yeah. That's great. That's, I, that's I could go on about Fight Club for a couple of hours. We can do that later some other time. But um, <laughs> it had two of the greatest American actors, you know, Brad Pitt and, and well, Norwich. They should well, yeah. be. They should be in uh Chuck that your um not forever uh your new book if it's ever no. adapted Norton and, and Brad Pitt should return to whatever characters you deem worthy. I can see that actually. Um, Seriously, like there's there's a few parts for both of those guys. Yeah, I, I could see it. Then then both wearing nappies. Yeah, they're the brothers. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that's the the charm about books is that. Books are going to be able to, to do things and go places that movies can never go. Sure. Yeah. And books can hide things in a way that movies can't hide because mo movies have to make things so literal. It's much harder to hide things. Um, yeah. And so if I'm going to write a book, if I'm going to spend that much time, I want to do something that is almost impossible for a movie to do. That's why I'm surprised, you know, like when Lord of the Rings Fellowship of the Ring first came out, like I became obsessed with it. My first other trailer is only 12 or 13, but I'm surprised after hearing you say that, that a movie nailed the book so well. Like, I love the books. I love the movies. Um, but then I think of like Stephen King's Dark Tower series and good luck to whoever takes over that. And then, uh, you know, Lovecraft and you, you all of you have... Uh, there's a really specificness and you leave out certain parts. So just kind of piggybacking off your point. Um, Chuck, unless you don't have anything to say, Brennan, jump in. Nope. All right. I'll jump in. Um, <laughs> you know what? Yeah. I'm, I'm going to turn us. I got a fun one. Um, kind of piggybacking off what you were talking about earlier with uh, wanting to see more minimalism and repetition uh, in not just horror fiction, but even fiction, genre fiction in general. Um, I'm a huge Vonnegut fan. And, you know, one of my favorite repetitions is So It Goes, classic. Mm -hmm. But but I also love the uh, snare drums in The Sirens of Titan. So I'm wondering, what are some of your favorite literary repetitions? In my own work or other people's Oh, work? period. Uh. Other people's, let's say. I love how in uh, it wasn't in the book, but it was in the movie that was made from Shirley Jackson's The Haunting. It uh, the book opens with a kind of almost like a uh, bit of free verse poetry, the describing Hill House, uh, the doors being hung, uh, walls meeting, floors very evenly, and then the movie uses that sort of free verse poetry at the beginning. But that also uses it at the end as a kind of doorstop, and in the, in the the last version is changed. It's changed from "Those who live there live alone" to at the very end, uh, "We who live here live alone." So Eleanor is now including herself among these perpetual people at Hill House, and I love the the, the strange little couplet. It's more than a couplet, uh, quatrain. Uh, that begins and ends Jabberwocky. Uh, mm. Twas brillig in the slithy tovas. Uh, did garden gibble in the wabe or mimsy with the borogovas? It's that strange little way in and out that I find so completely charming about Jabberwocky. And the, the format of that poem, too. Uh, it was just perfect for, for that, bizarre, that bizarre poem. Uh, Brendan jumped back in. Well, I originally kind of... Oh, sorry, Chuck, go ahead. I, what I love about Jabberwocky is that it demonstrates um, how so much of what we communicate is intuitive, mm. that the words themselves don't really matter. Uh, the verbs matter, but even the verbs are made up. The vorpal blade went snicker-snack. Uh, he went galumphin back. Uh, mm. that, that context is the most important aspect of, of storytelling there. 
and that we will accept any word as long as the context is clear. And so I'm always pushing myself and I'm always pushing my students to tell stories in these fantastically intuitive ways that allow the reader to have this sense of just having learned how to read. Because there was a fantastic joy when you could first understand the symbol, the system of symbols. And if you can deliver that to the reader again, then they they will read as if they've never read before. They will read with a kind of ongoing ecstasy and joy that I think is is really close to the kind of sustained ecstasy that I feel while I'm writing. And so making up language, making up words the way that, you know, Lovecraft was famous for making up words, just inventing them. Uh, that this kind of intuitive use of, of nonsense is is fantastic. And again, Jabberwocky demonstrates that. Hmm. I think there there's, it's such a big piece of voice, which is, you know, in modern fiction where there's just so much at your fingertips, you know, uh, blame it on the internet or whatever, but there's, there's so many choices in books. What really separates something from the crowd is original voice. And one, you know, one, element of that is that kind of intuitive use of verbs um that just it sounds unnatural but through context um there's a song that uses the word condescends and through context it basically sounds like physical movement but with like a superior attitude and there for a long time i was using that and i didn't even realize that that wasn't the proper way to use condescend because it was just so uh eye-catching for lack of better Mm. words um i think stephen graham jones is somebody who does a very very good job with that um to the repetition thing when i you know threw that out there my initial thought was i want to hear what you think of other people's work but actually now i kind of want you to pick something from your work what's your favorite repetition oh boy uh i think from my book lullaby there was a kind of chorus uh Blank is not the right word, but it's the first word that comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Where again, it's it's about not re- not fully nailing the, the correct word, but by suggesting a nearness to the correct word uh, that, in a way, is is working to negate exact language. And when when we talk about this kind of intuitive storytelling, it is something that I hope that AI can never do. Because AI is going to be really good at getting standard plots right, and it's going to be really good about getting standard grammar right and checking its own spelling. But I don't think it's going to be able to do that kind of intuitive, really sort of under-the-radar gut-level storytelling. And so I think AI will do to fiction what photography did to figurative painting that there was a lot of really bad figurative painting until photography replaced it. And then painting had to become much more intuitive, much more sort of uh, uh, subliminal. Is that just had to be much more sort of human than systematized. Uh, And so I think that that's a direction that, that fiction will go because of AI. AI will make really easy modernism just automatic. And so people will have to be much, or writers will be have, to, have to be much more intuitive and uh, and getting things wrong in this very intentioned way. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I'm glad you touched on AI and I'm glad you did it with that line of thought because that's, I, I to some degree or another, I think that's kind of what's going through all of our heads right now when we're seeing it become so prevalent. Uh, but that's a long road and a long conversation. And I want to make sure I throw it back to Ross one more time since he was nice enough to stay up until like midnight to join us. <laughs> yes, I'm normally in bed by now. But anyway, um, uh, yeah, I've got a question really about, um, well, I'm going to use an Americanism. Uh, you know, social media is usually a dumpster fire. Um, but you've kind of navigated that, Chuck, and you've gone, uh, you use Substack and um uh, plot spoiler so I'm, I'm kind of subscribed to that and if if you're listening to this subscribe to it because you get access to loads of cool stuff um how have you found 
that because you seem to be having a whale of a time with it and like you know i get notifications like daily and whatever and it's really cool to see everything that you're going through and doing is is that more um fulfilling for you than all the other kind of social media stuff that's out there um as a writer and also you know as a reader um it is but i uh, a large component of that is that it's come to me uh very late in my career that in for a long time i think it was really important that the the books be the books and then i i sort of remain off the stage because i did not want to become the product myself uh, i wanted people to sort of make up their minds about what the books might be about and to debate the books but to always be looking at the books i did not want to have to go out there and dance and sing um, and so coming to it very late in my career uh, has made it palatable and also a lot of fun because the books have had a chance to to sort of be themselves um, and now it's really important to me to pass along these aspects of storytelling that my very best teachers have taught me i feel like it would be selfish and it would be just kind of a crime against storytelling to try to hoard these things and not discuss them and not to try to communicate them for other people so that other writers have these options uh, if they don't know what to do with the second act of a story, if they don't, don't know how to introduce impossible information early on. Just all these little tricks. Uh, I want you to try to articulate them, to document them, and to ultimately communicate them so that other writers can use them. So there is this kind of repository uh, for for different, more effective techniques. Really early on with the Substack, I asked people to um, to provide as many different ways, euphemisms or different ways of phrasing uh, cognitive processes uh, so that you wouldn't have to use an abstract verb like I thought it or I, I remembered it or um, I, I believed it. You wouldn't have to use these abstract conceptual verbs. And so people started, they, they, they listed this, hundreds, thousands of very physical ways of, you know, it suddenly struck him or it dawned on her or she told herself this, these very much more concrete ways of expressing a kind of cognitive verb. And so just creating this stockpile where if people need a really concrete way of, of, of avoiding a kind of conceptual verb, they could ideally go to this substack, to this one posting, where thousands, thousands of people have listed these very, very valid, this enormous inventory of very, very valid ways of saying abstract things in a much more physical, tangible way. So it's just about sort of creating this resource, this, this growing reservoir, this inventory of ideas and techniques that people also contribute to so that it is there when people need it that's excellent uh we're going to do final thoughts now uh and chuck if it's all right with you we'll end with you um candace final thoughts final thoughts um well first thank you for your time i enjoyed it um of course thank you for fight club because we all know i enjoyed that <laughs> um I I um I actually do want to throw out there one more um thank you on that note. Um I really like the way you explore the very real fears that we have as pe people ra rather than the supernatural the paranormal aspect. It's there's a lot of just how we confront who we are at our most exposed that comes out in a lot of what you write that I like a whole lot. And I don't think there's a lot of, of authors out there that kind of like make you accept that reality until you're confronted with it in one of your books. So I don't know. I just like it a lot. 
thought and I appreciate you. So thank you for your time and your words and can't wait to see what's next. Thank you. Thanks. You're welcome. Russ. Um, yeah, I'm just gonna, uh, just want to say thank you, uh, for everything. Uh, you've given me like I've been a reader of yours since Fight Club and read everything. And uh, there's there was a book uh, I love Survivor, and I, I got a signed copy of it uh, from the states. And uh, inside of it, it was all stamped. I don't know if you did that yeah. on your book tour or something, yeah. but it was stamped with like libraries and all that kind of stuff. And that inspired me to write my book Tome, uh, which has a, a book which is um, it. It's kind of a um, a cursed object, uh, but it it gets taken around. It's in the prison system, and it get, goes to different prisons and things like that. And that just having that book and looking at that was kind of foundational for that book because it kind of got me thinking. And um, and yeah, I just wanted to thank you for yeah years of inspiration and for kind of what Candice said, just just showing people life and how it is, and um, and that you can be who you are and and you know, sod the world type thing. So, um, yeah, just thank you for, uh, for now as well. Yeah, I did. I did stamp those books. I, 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 I'm always trying to reinvent what, what becomes a kind of tedium. And so signing books or inscribing books, uh, ultimately becomes tedious. And so for a long period, I would have these, uh, self inking stamps made that implied a context that this book had been, part of a prison system or part of a mental hospital system. And it would be stamped in such a way that it would look like it was stolen from this particular institution. <laughs> and so anything like that, that I could do that would add yet another layer of meaning the, in the current Substack, stack uh, I'm running this, this strange month long contest where I found these kind of disturbing, unusual old photographs in junk stores. And I would photograph, I would post them and I would ask people to give me inscriptions, suggest inscriptions that I could write on the back of these. And ultimately, I would write this very short inscription on the back. And I would put the photograph in the future into a used book in a bookstore that I was just browsing. <laughs> so that someday, a third party who was not a Substack person, who was not me, would find this book and would find this strange photograph with a very disturbing two or three word inscription on the back. And it would sort of catalyze their own story and they would become obsessed with this photo. And so the things that people have come up with in this contest are so deeply disturbing and amusing. <laughs> and I'm having a ball doing this. Um, it's like doing a meme, but with a meme, you have the image and the message on one surface. And with this photograph, you have the object. And so you see either the message or the photograph, depending on which side you're looking at. And to find this thing tucked in an old book somewhere in a bookstore, um, it just seems like the ultimate kind of pranking. Uh, and I find it completely charming because it's going gonna, it's gonna to give someone nightmares. It's going to give a lot of people nightmares. So like those stamps that you have found in your book, Hmm. It's always about trying to present another layer uh, on this sort of mass-produced thing. Yeah, and you don't know how that is going to like touch people down the line as well, because it could inspire other people to write other things. And um, but yeah, I just wanted to say yeah, thanks, thank you very much for everything. You bet. Thank you. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm going to go, Brennan, and then Chuck. Uh, I just want to thank you for allowing me to get Brennan a gift that probably won't be topped again. Um, so thank you for that. I think it was for his birthday or whatever, but uh, yeah, uh, it's pretty much a like mic drop because I'm like, try to top that, Brennan. <laughs> yeah. So well, thank you for not, that, man. That's not happening. Uh, that's that was Christmas 2021. Oh, yeah. There we and, go. And uh, I'm very pleased to be able to uh, thank uh, you in, well, as close to in person as we can get, Chuck, for the uh, inscribed books as well as my mood rock right here that lives on my writing desk. Um, so thank you, my friend. Uh, as always, it is a pleasure. I'm thrilled that we've, you know, been able to have you on three times now. Um, and the generosity, um, both with your time, but also, you know, what you were talking about with giving 
to the next generation of writers through Substack um, and just kind of being able to take the lessons that you've learned throughout a long writing career and pass them on in hopes that, you know, when if the day comes where you don't want to do this anymore, you're going to have plenty of great new fiction to keep you busy. Um, so thank you for that. And thank you for coming. Um, wow. Thank you. It's uh, it's always nice to have to be civil. <laughs> I am just a bastard to my students. I am so brutal to my students uh, because I expect so much from them. And I know I won't be able to teach them forever. Um, I want them to 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 really, really uh, force themselves to do unusual things. I, I'm tired of, I'm so tired of listening to really banal fiction. And I don't care if it's written good or bad. Uh, it still should be worth listening to. Mm. And I'm so tired of what's more or less what what I'm I'm paying for on streaming. I go to seriously, this is a horrible truth, but I would go down to these pitch meetings on all the streaming platforms. And I ultimately got some deals. But at some point I would ask these people at NBC or Hulu or whatever, what do you watch? And they would all look at me like I was crazy. And they would say, Oh, we don't watch streaming. That's for other people. That's for the little people. And they said, we might watch one or two episodes of someone's new series, just see what they're up to. But no, we've got better things to do. <laughs> and so I am so sick of this kind of mass-marketed, test-marketed fiction that we're given. And, you know, I just think people deserve better. And I know that I deserve better. So even if it seems uncivil, um, yeah, I'm really tough on my students, and it's nice to be really to be forced to play nice. So thank you for forcing me to play nice. High expectations show that you care. <laughs> then uh, you know what, guys? That was a great talk. I appreciate your time, Chuck. As always, we love talking to you. Never know what never know what you're gonna say. I learned like 50 new things today. So thank you for that, uh, Candace. Thank you for coming uh, out tonight brennan ross appreciate you guys uh, being here as well listener slash viewer thank you for your time and as always we appreciate you picking us have a good night thank you